And ladies and gentlemen, let's go play. We've been talking about this for a while, Daryl and I, that we would uh, get together, sit down at the table and uh, chat about whatever is on our mind. Because every single time we're on the phone together, we end the conversation an hour plus later going, why the hell didn't we record this? This would have been a perfect podcast. So today we're going to fix that mistake. Daryl, I'm glad uh, we are sharing at the table together today finally yeah we made it happen let's go cool so i know there are a few things that we are chatting like ah this would make a great conversation we could chat about this and that there was one that you had on your mind today um anything in particular that well you and i have both played the game far cry primal oh hell yes it's just a video game uh but man video games are getting pretty good nowadays i haven't i hadn't played games in a long time and uh probably about what 15 20 years and i was pretty shocked at how amazing some of these games are and you played this game far cry primal you you gotta try it because you and i have talked about just the idea of the paleolithic humans we've talked about that for a long time and so i played it it was awesome and both of, since both of us loved it, we thought it would be a good jumping off point for yeah, yeah, yeah. a discussion. And there's a million different directions you can go with a, a talk about Paleolithic man, right? Because to me, probably the single most interesting thing to think about and, and study, obviously a lot of it's speculation, it's not something you can necessarily do research on, but is how both human society and human I guess, consciousness, psychology developed. Because, you know, whether or not you accept the theory of evolution on its face as it stands right now, I think we're all, for the most part, pretty well in agreement that there was, you know, that you go far enough back and humans were animals, or at least something very close to it, right? Chimpanzees are are still animals. We're not. We're something. We're animals plus. And if you go back, you know, was there this cutoff point where it's like, all of a sudden, one human woke up mm-hmm. and sort of looked around and was like, oh, wow, like, I'm conscious now. Hey, everybody, like, check this out. Or was it something that developed very slowly in different groups at different uh, periods of time, you know? Like, where, I'm, and this is kind of where I fall on it. Like, I imagine that there were probably human groups in the Paleolithic who were getting pretty close in terms of their, in terms of their mental structure to what we would think of as being a conscious human today, side by side with other groups, maybe in different regions, but maybe in the same region that uh, were still much more, you would say those are closer to animals. Those are more ape than man. And that's a trippy one because especially when you go that far back in time, it's so hard to know for sure. Of course. right? Because it's like we do know that there are all these different hominid species that are kind of similar to us that turn out to be evolutionary that end down the road. So they are not around today, but they are... You know, everybody knows the Andertals because they are some that some of us still carry that kind of DNA. Uh, others have been completely evolutionary that end. But there is, um, you read anything from books about it that portray some of these uh, hominid species as um, glorified apes uh, with barely any language and uh, to others that portray them as really not that different from us at yeah. all. And it's very hard to tell uh, which one is which, which one is accurate, which, you know, of course, the more you study, the more you dig into the evidence, the easier it is to start getting at least make an educated guess. But many of these are not, uh, are not, there are no simple answers. You know, if somebody wants like, so are these guys like us or not? It's like, well, I wish I could tell you, you know, it's not that... And in some way, to me, the part that gets interesting, too, is that, I mean, you're going way, way back, sort of at origin point. Mm-hmm. Because I get lost in that, because the reality is it can be so complicated, I'm fascinated to speculate about it, but I also know that I'm never going to have a good answer. The other side that also fascinates me, though, is the ones that we do know a little, like our direct ancestors living in small-scale tribes in contact with the land, leave it as a unit of 20, 30, 40, 50 people in good environments. Maybe you can go to 200 people, more often than not less. But like tight-knit community, having to band together and figure out how to make a living off the land as hunters and gatherers, I find that (laughs) super fascinating. Well, because humans are adaptation, right? We don't have 
long claws or mm-hmm. sharp teeth. We don't have any of those things. What we're good at is cooperation. Yep. That's our adaptation. And cooperation means language mm-hmm. to us. And so I think you can kind of trace the development of human psychology and society along the same arc as the, the development of our language, right? I think about this a lot. So again, it's total speculation, but you think like, okay, what were, how did language start? Because you have animals that have, I mean, you know, there's certain things, they have calls, mm-hmm. right? And that's, so I, I, this is obviously speculation, but I think about, for example, like maybe uh, there's a there's a little group of apes and they learn that if they go, you know, key, key, that means tiger approaching. Yeah. Yep. And then at some point, as you know, these are these are animals with some some more developed brains, like some capability. They figure out they can do ki ah. That means tiger approaching from that direction, yep. right, yep. or yep. something. Or hey you, like some. They were all very, you know. You can be sure that they were not uh, the first words that humans were coming up with were not. Uh, Philosophical, things. No, of course. You know, everything was extremely practical, completely about, yeah. devoted to avoiding danger, yeah. procuring food, confrontation with mm-hmm. others, like you know, all, all those kind of things, and then cooperation in the hunt and so forth. Everything very, very directly uh, related to things that you can point to in the world. Yeah. Right. I think that's one of the reasons that when you look at ancient myths, because this is you know we're talking about the Paleolithic. Mm-hmm. You just go back a few thousand years ago. Like when uh, the you know the Book of Genesis say was like not when it was being written, but go back to when it was an oral tradition, yeah. like that 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 the writing grew out of. You're talking about a Hebrew language, or who knows if it was originally in mm-hmm. Hebrew, a Semitic language with a just drastically smaller vocabulary than we have today, of course. and pretty much all of the words had directly to do with things in your environment that you had deal with in your life. And yep. so you have to try to now explain how the universe came into being. And, you know, if you have an outlook uh, that if we today, like in philosophical terms, we would say that the universe, like at its at its most fundamental level, is more like a mind than a machine. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay, now you have to tell that story to say that. But there's no such word as mind. <laughs> right. You don't have, like, yeah. the whole idea of consciousness is not something that you have any word for. It's yeah. like there's stuff going on up in your head, but that's not, yeah. you're just not removed from it yet that, that far, like that level of abstraction in your language. And I think even, like, if you look, the, if you look at the Greeks, they're the, they're the ones that you just see this development so clearly where you go back to Homer. And, I mean, this was the basis of, like, Greek civilization in a lot of ways, not just... Not just sort of like these are our gods or sure. whatever, but you know they they, they think that like uh, you know the Greeks passed down knowledge on like how to build a ship and how to do different mm-hmm. things in the form of these poems that could be easily memorized and yep. passed down, and how to how a man's supposed to behave in battle or toward his family or whatever. All these things are contained in these stories. And fast forward a few hundred years, you get to Plato, and now the Greek language has developed in such a way that. You know, you got logos. You got yeah, all yeah. these it gets things. Really, that, it can get abstract and complicated. And, which, uh, which is great for sure. for a lot of things, right? I mean, look what, what, what Plato and Aristotle were able to do. Yeah. But uh, but it's but that's something that comes far later, you yeah. know. And you see that with like kids. It's like you can't explain to a child under seven mm-hmm. something in abstract terms. Sure. They're just not. They're not going to get it. It's and it's not that they're not smart enough yet of course. they literally don't have the neurological hardware for yep. that put together yet yep. and um if you want to teach them something they have to watch you do it and copy you that's the first one mimesis right teach them to tie their mm-hmm. shoes watch what i do do yep. the same thing and then next is you tell them a story mm-hmm. narrative yep. right so it's mimesis narrative and then eventually you get to theory but that's way far down the line and that's that's as Human development, it's far down the line, but like like in an individual, but also like as the human race, that's something that's a very recent development. You know what I mean? Even because, you know, the more abstract you get, and it's not that there's nothing valuable in it. Of course, there's plenty of stuff that's valuable in even more abstract philosophical concepts and so on and so forth. 
but it becomes easy to lose contact with what's right here right now in front of you the stuff that you can i mean even like some of the reason why i think people get so frustrated when talking politics or religion is because often it goes so big so broad (laughs) so large so far from the stuff that you can reach with your hands and touch and affect that in many cases they make you feel powerless because it's too too far out there Whereas the stuff that's right here within uh, within touching distance is the stuff that ultimately provide the basic building blocks of life in a more immediate kind of way. Do you get food or you don't? Do you get a safe place to sleep or you don't? You know, you go back to really the basic essential needs of humanity. Only when those needs are satisfied, more complex philosophical things you can afford to go in there because ultimately they are a luxury to some degree you know there's a sense that the uh it's like well that's great we can talk about all that once we have everybody well fed Mm -hmm. and the saber to tiger is not coming to kill us all you know there was a time and i read this in an article this is not uh something i can claim to be like original research or anything but um if you look at the development of human life expectancy Mm -hmm. in the paleolithic we notice uh, right around thirty to 40,000 years ago, there's a big jump in life expectancy. Mm-hmm. From like 30 years to 50, 55 years, you start to see. And the really interesting thing about that is not just that humans were living longer, is that when that happened, you had the invention of a new institution called grandparents. Totally new institution. If everybody's dying at 30 years yeah. old, and now you have grandparents. Mm-hmm. Well, you think about how that's going to change the, the structure of yeah. your little tribes, of your societies. You know, the parents, they're busy. Mm-hmm. They're procuring food. They're defending nope. the tribe. Nope. They're gathering. They're doing whatever they have to do to survive. That's what the adults are doing. But now you have this whole class of people who can watch the kids, hang out with the kids while the adults are off doing that teach them mm-hmm. the wisdom of the tribe so that culture gets passed down much more yep. in a much more broad range. And what, what do we see like thirty to 40,000 years ago? That's when you start to see after, shoot, hundreds of thousands of years, you look at like human tool development and everything, and it all just stays the same. Right. You have the hand axes and mm-hmm. stuff that just, they don't really change for hundreds of thousands of years. And then you get to about thirty or 40,000 years ago, and human culture just starts... Going on all over the place, you you know, from the cave paintings to just necklace decorations, you know, all the different things that we see with um, burial arrangements, Mm -hmm. which indicates like a lot of cultural development. Just a huge explosion right at that same time. And I I like to play with the idea that like that has something to do with the invention of grandparents. (laughs) It's a cool idea. I mean, there's something to be said about, uh, and I think this is something that humans have done forever but when you add an extra generation that almost professionally does that it changes the dynamics Mm -hmm. the idea of just sitting around the fire telling stories and teaching each other things through storytelling i think that's part of the reason why you know with you or with me doing a long form history podcast i think it's the same drive yeah the reason why people listen you know we can come up with intellectual reasons but the reality is, is the same drive that made a cave dweller thirty thousand years ago sit around listening to their grandparents tell a cool story because a, it's entertaining b you learn something from it c is like oh, i can actually use some of this stuff for my own life and yeah. you know but it's a mix of entertainment and learning that went from the get-go i mean that's what we are hardwired for as human beings when we when we look at our religious texts we lose that element of it because it has this sort of sacred aura sure. and like in the case of the bible for example like the way it gets translated and put down is this very high sounding mm-hmm. sort of officious like you know like like at the very beginning when uh you know god says let there be light what that really like the the literal hebrew like if you were going to translate it like probably the best translation is just light right but we say let there be light yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. what a king would say course, you know something like that and so we look at them that way but but there's no doubt that our religious texts when you sit down and look at them these are campfire stories mm-hmm. these are guys sitting around or or even like a classic like you take something like beowulf do you remember how Be- like Beowulf, because we learned about it in school and it's like an English classic sure. and all these things, it, it doesn't have like the aura of a religious text, but it still has like the Iliad yeah, or yeah. something, right? Yep. And when you read at the very beginning of, uh, of Beowulf, where it's just like setting the stage in the first couple pages, 
And it says there was this king. And it tells like, you know, like a page and a half, tells the story of this earlier king who was super badass, conquered all these places, built these great mead halls. And then when he died in battle, he had a funeral that was just, they piled his ship with more treasure than you've ever seen. And that's how he went out, which is the, the mark of like ultimate yeah. honor in, in their society, right? And so then like the next thing is then they say, and now here's Beowulf and they start talking about him and like we read it in like a in the the sort of old English language that it gets translated for us in but what that really is it's like all right sitting around a campfire like all right guys check this out Mm -hmm. you know that one king who built all those mead halls and like had that huge ass funeral and everything fuck that guy check this Beowulf dude like that's what it is it's obvious you know and it yeah it's really fun to read them like that yeah it is, and I think it also it's useful in that sense to remember that oral traditions, stories that are told, uh, they are not written down. They were flexible. Yeah, you know, depending yeah. on your audience, yeah, stuff can change. Details are added. The variations are introduced. I mean, you even see that, like you were mentioning, uh, sort of the older, like Genesis kind of thing in the Bible. There are cle- there's clearly more than one tradition that's being recorded and put yeah, in one book. Yeah. You know, you right. have one tale in which uh, uh, the animals are created first and then humans. The next page is flipped and it's like humans mm-hmm. are created first. Then it's like, whoa, whoa, I just read the opposite. <laughs> it's like logically. And it's like, well, because you are trying to apply logics in a strict way to something that wasn't designed to be that literal. Yeah. You know, where yeah. it was like, hey, we're trying to make a bigger point here. And there's more than one tradition about it. Be- different storytellers uh, don't get back down in the details kind of thing. Yeah. But of course, if, once you're Which you wouldn't if you were listening to totally, it. Totally, totally. You know what it's I mean? Like like... When it's, uh, and I think <clears throat> there's something there when there was our number one form of education and like education and entertainment were not separate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like throughout much of human history, there were not two separate things where you go doing this boring educational thing that's useful, but tedious, or you go have fun uh, listening to story at night. They were one and the same, you know, they went, they were extremely intertwined which I really think why we like storytelling so that matches a species, why we watch, we watch movies, we play video games, we listen to podcasts, we do, you know, you name it. You can go down the list and there are so many ways to tell stories. And as human beings, we're fascinated with stories because, I mean, I really feel, I really feel that so much of the stuff that we're drawn to is not just by chance. Is we are sta- we are drawn to stuff that our ancestors have gone through tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of that being a huge thing in their life. Yeah, and storytelling being one of them. Storytelling has been same thing. And I'm sorry, I'll open and close that real quick as a parenthesis. But like, if you think about something that uh, is almost a uni- human universal with little kids, fear of the dark. Right, how every child gets freaked out when they are in the darkness. And it's usually only adults that, some adults, not everybody, but some adults that outgrow it and they're like, ah, it's just the darkness, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we think of it as most as a childish thing. It's like, ah, come on, you're scared of the dark. What the hell is your problem? But when you think about it, it's like generations and generations when the sun would come down and you have big giant predators looking to eat you. And the people who weren't sufficiently afraid of the dark died. Yeah. And, and the only <laughs> thing filtered you, out. Yes. And the only thing you got keeping you from those guys and being eaten are some sharp sticks and a campfire. And you know, at the edge you hear them roaring, you see yeah. those little lights that show their eyes that are checking you I out. I think about that sometimes, like, you know, a, a, a tribe back in the Paleolithic sitting around the campfire at night beyond like the halo of the firelight mm-hmm. it is just inky blackness out there yep. and you can hear the animals and they're right out there and like you're you don't have a wall up you don't have any of that nope and you know i think also like this is another thing that we i think our, our general approach that we relate to the world is so different from people even not even you know if you go back like uh Say, you know, like, look at, like, the Assyrian frescoes Mm -hmm. where the king is out with his chariot men, like, hunting lions, right? And it's like, we look at that today as, like, oh, it's like big game trophy hunting. And it's like, no, dude. Like, okay, so this guy says he's the king. 
What does that mean? That means you guys pay me taxes because I can defend you. Mm-hmm. If anybody comes starting shit or whatever, like I'm the dude. Yeah. Me and my friends are going to take care of business. And so you're like a small farmer. You know, you've got your staff and your shepherd and there's lions that are eating your means of survival. Yep. You know, these sheep or whatever you have are the only thing you have between you and your family starving mm-hmm. to death. And there are lions eating them. And you're just a dude with a stick or whatever, right? And you go to this dude and this guy comes with his friends and they go hunt down and kill those lions. Yeah. You know, no guns, no anything like that. You're going to look at that dude and be like, wow, like, okay, yeah. You know maybe what? you should be king. <laughs> yeah, maybe like yeah, this is a, an arrangement I could live with. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, part of the reason for that is because, you know, even up to a few thousand years ago, People didn't look at animals and think like, oh, we're way up here and animals are way down here. They looked and they were like, this thing's way stronger than me. It's way more just superior in a million different ways. Like, there's no reason for me to think of myself as a higher being than this at all. You know, there's just no basis for that. And especially true if you go back to like Paleolithic times. I mean, there's no basis at all for that, you know. That's why so much of, uh, if you look at the evidence for some of the most ancient forms of religion in the world, in all kind of like shamanic ceremonies, the relationship with animals is key Mm. because it's you and the animals out there and unseen forces that have power over your life. So your religious specialist, the shaman, if you will, or whatever, you know, the wording can change from culture to culture, of course, but like the one person or multiple in the tribe or religious specialist, part of their deal is to mediate with these other forces out there of which animals are some pretty powerful ones. Because as we we're saying, you know, like that fear of the dark, you know, we think it's like, oh, what you think? There's the monster out uh, under your bed and you're scared of the dark. It's like, well, when it's dark, there are literal monsters right there, probably no le- less than 200 yards away trying to eat me. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm scared, yeah. of course. And so for... For a tribe living in close contact with nature, where being able to hunt is the difference between life and death, being able not to get eaten by a certain predator is the difference between life and death. Having somebody who, through religious ceremonies, can uh, increase your odds, can make a deal with like the master spirit of that animal to keep it away from your camp, or the other way around, make a deal so that you are more likely to be able to hunt them. And then you have to establish a reciprocity because, again, the point is you're making a deal. You're not just the superior species yeah. who's taking over. You are a species who can be... You can find yourself in that uh, in the feeding circle at different spots. You can end up as the prey yeah. just as yeah. much as, as the predator. And so doing these... Uh, <clears throat> making deals has been a classic part of early religion where you're trying to like, hey, okay, if you let yourself get killed, we're going to do ceremonies so that you can come back uh, or whatever yeah, things I, believed in. Yeah, I remember and, a really great, uh, it was, it was the, the Plains Indians had a story about buffalo. Mm-hmm. They went like, like the, it was the origin of their buffalo dance. And it was something like that. Right, because you need to... And, and don't get me wrong, you know, we're not over-romanticizing with the idea of like, oh, everybody lived in perfect harmony with nature. That's not the case. Clearly, there were plenty, plenty, plenty of cases of people who really severely screwed up the balance with natural resources. But as a general rule, the notion of reciprocity, the notion of I will derive food from you, you will become my food. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to be mean about it. Let's make a deal. You know, I'll do the proper ceremonies so that then you can be reincarnated or go into whatever land they believe people go into after that, animals included, and do a whole thing where it's like, okay, you know, eating is a fact of life and I want to eat you, but let's figure out a way to keep it going. That's a classic thing that you find well, in that, shamanic that, cultures. Just that. Like, I think about sometimes how... You know, you go back to the earliest single-celled organisms, and from that moment on, the one, like, the definition of life is it's this substance that seeks out other life to consume it and integrate it into its own being. That's what life is, and grow as a result. And all of our movement from the single-celled organisms up to where we are now has been the result of those things finding different ways to try to better kill and eat their fellow life 
and to better defend itself and to better reproduce, right? Those are the things that have, like, driven us from single-celled organisms up to, like, great civilizations, right? And that is 99.9% of what Isaac Newton is, Mm -hmm. of what Albert Einstein was, right? 99% of him is this thing that for a billion generations, going all the way back through different levels of species, uh, got by by killing and, and... uh, it destroying like the th- other things around it to put those resources to its own use. Somebody put it where, uh, you know, you think like today, survival, like in a, in a modern society, survival is not something that is quite the competition that it used sure. to be. But for most of even human history, like if you were not, like not everybody got to mate nope. and, and propagate their line. Like that was not everybody. Right. It was only some people. And, like, it was a minority of people in most mm-hmm. cases. And so you get, like, people today, even, like, a person who seems like the weakest, just laziest, whatever it is person you can find, is the product of, like, a 100,000 generations of, like, alpha yep. primary males, you mm-hmm. know, that, like, uh, that, that, that came up to this point. And that's still 99% of what you are. And I mean, it would have been, it would have not been an uncommon, a terribly uncommon experience for a family to, at some point in their life, watch one of their children get dragged away by an animal. Yep. Like that would not have been terribly uncommon. No. You know, especially if you're nomadic, you're moving around. Now, humans, obviously, like, I mean, we're the easiest pickings in the world. If you just think about like, all right, there's a little group of humans living in the jungle here or out on the plains, and you're a lion. Like, was way easier than taking down anything else in your environment, except for the fact that we're smart and we can cooperate to defend ourselves. But that's, like, that's an all-day job, Mm -hmm. you know, where, like, you have to be defending yourself at all times. Because, like, if you take your eyes off your kids for one second, you know, there's something out there waiting to take them. And and this is the mindset that, like, our ancestors uh, lived with and Mm -hmm. and, and is really bred into us, like, in a deep way, you know. And I think a lot of the things that we, you know, that today sort of get, uh, sort of get transferred to uh, modern concerns, mm-hmm. but that are very obviously like very primitive concerns. Uh, you, know, you think about something like when, when this is actually an argument about like that, 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 that sometimes you'll see people who are in favor of like social welfare programs mm-hmm. and stuff make that I'm very sympathetic to actually, where you know, they'll talk about how when people are poor, living paycheck to paycheck, or, you know, um, maybe they're not hungry or anything mm-hmm. like that, but they do know that, like, if things were to go wrong for them economically, that they could be hungry in a week, yep. you know, yep. so there's very little security there. That That's not just somebody being like, oh, I don't have enough money. Uh, how are people going to look at me with my crappy clothes sure. or just whatever? There's something in the deepest part of your brain saying, you're going to die. Yep. You're going to starve to death. Yep. You are going to die. Your family's going to die. You're all going to starve to death. Do something. Do something. Do something. And like that's what that is. That's that feeling you get when you're broke or yep. when a debt collector's calling or something. That's what that feeling is. And you know, the people who who the, the in favor of the social welfare programs will make that point that like when people are placed under that level of stress, just sort of, you know, on a, basically as a chronic permanent sure. thing. That it's it's really it's not good for anybody, and I'm sympathetic to that argument. Especially in a society like ours, where those conditions are different, because I think it's like one of the differences that as a old time hunting and gathering band, a you're used to it because that's just life. You don't know anything else, you know. And uh, yeah, one of the drawbacks because there are many advantages to hunting and gathering, but one of the big disadvantages is the fact that usually you can't store food for very long because yeah. you are nomadic. So you, <clears throat> first, you have to carry stuff on your back. Second, you can only store so much, literally what you can carry on your back. So you know, every week or two at most, you need to find new sources of food. If you don't, you starve. So it's fantastic lifestyle in environments that are bountiful, not so fantastic in environments that can be really harsh. If you, because again, you're, you don't have the luxury of we had a good harvest last year, we were able to dry up some food and conserve it for a linear. No, you need to find stuff all the time. I think that's one of the key mistakes people have made over the years, and even scholars and stuff I think have made this mistake. 
and they're better about uh-huh. it now, but for a long time, where they just sort of assumed that, like, what were Paleolithic people like? Well, let's look at the Australian Aborigines. Like, they're, you know, they never developed from that period, sure. right? So that must be something like what they were, it's like, slow down. Like, that's, first of all, like, most of the hunter-gatherer tribes that that we've encountered, even even ones that... You know, there are exceptions like the Hawaiians, you know, the Kwakiutl maybe over in the Pacific Northwest. But for the most part, long before Western explorers ever got there, some other urbanized agricultural people had pushed those people out into the desert, into the crappy hills, you Mm -hmm. know, places that were not ideal. And so you can't necessarily look at them living in a scarcity environment like that and draw broad conclusions about what hunter-gatherers are like. But it is interesting how... If you do look at, like, the Kwakiutl are great. Yeah. The Hawaiians are great for this, too, where they had a sufficiently abundant in- environment that even though they couldn't, uh, they, you know, they didn't obviously have refrigeration or anything, they weren't storing food, uh, they actually, their, their populations grew to a point because the land itself could support such a population that you start to see social complexity that begins to resemble like early civilizations almost like class structures and stuff you saw this and i the... think i mean with hawaii for sure because those guys farm so mm-hmm. those guys right, right, take right. it in a different direction but yes with like pacific northwest tribes that's an exception because you see these guys being hunters and gatherers and yet having so much access to resources that in many cases they were nomadic or they were mildly nomadic yeah. and they could accommodate resources in a way that most traditional image of hunters and gatherers. And they come up with things like the potlatch. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. To to a Kung Bushman, they would hear about that and be like, what? (laughs) No, in fact, and I think that's where there's a gigantic difference. But I think uh, back to your point about the stress of, uh, oh, you're going to starve. It's also a very different scenario. Imagine it is, you know, you're in the middle of nature with your tribe, with your people, and as a community, you have to find food. Everybody's involved in this, right? Versus being today in a place where you walk a quarter of a mile and you see a place filled with every food you could possibly consume, but you don't have what it takes to go in and buy it, you know? And you are not part of this community who's struggling with the same thing. It's you as an individual or you as your tiny nuclear family struggling with, uh, with a lack of resources where resources are all around you. And so there's this weird paradox that not only, I mean, it sucks to starve regardless, but it sucks extra. I think psychologically it does weird things where you're not in a situation where everybody you know is in the same situation. You're in a situation where the person next door has so many resources they don't even know what to do with and you don't have uh, shoes for your kids. Plus, like, you know, just the same way that 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 old... Uh, instinct telling you you're going to starve mm-hmm. gets manifested today like when you're broke or you're mm-hmm. in debt or something there are other versions of that too and one of them is has to do with what you were just talking about like the social context throughout most of human history going back hundreds of thousands of years being alone meant you're going to die yep. that's what it meant even as you get late a little bit later like out of paleolithic times and stuff being alone meant you were going to get taken as a slave yep. like that you get caught out alone outside your polis or whatever. Yep. Like you're going to get taken as a slave. You, there's just you didn't have individuals just roaming around mm-hmm. doing their thing. It just didn't. You know, there might be some crazy lady out who lives out sure. on the outskirts of the village, but she's still part of the village. And you know, and the reason was because alone you were going to die. Yep. And today, like the whole idea of you're in your tribe, like what exile meant to somebody in a tribe. Or even somebody to like one of these earlier civilizations, exile was basically considered like a death sentence. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it really was just pretty much that. And the idea of like you and your nuclear family just splitting off and going off on your own and just living far away from anybody else, yeah. like that would have set off every primitive alarm bell in your in you know instinctual alarm bell telling you like you're gonna die this is crazy what Uh are you doing and that's how everybody lives today yep 
Everybody lives that way today. And I think that's where, and you know, this is another big discussion that we'll probably we have multiple times because it's such a key theme for anybody alive today. You have to pay attention to this stuff. But like the degree of uh, mental health problems that we are facing as a society, some of them, a lot of them, I would argue, are structural. They are not just you as an individual have a mental health problem. Is we are living structurally in a way that's not the way human beings have lived ever. And we assume that this is the new normal and that people can just adapt to it. Where, you know, you mentioned one of the key ones, like the the community aspects. We are not built to live outside of communities. Now, can some of us pull it off and be happy? Of course. But as a norm, the the fact that that's the norm, living now not as part of the community, and especially, I mean, you take like something within America, not all cultures are the same in that regard. You know, some societies, modern societies today, tend to emphasize family and community more. One of the things that has been, it's the double-edged sword of American culture, what's both good about it and what's problematic about it is the individualism, right? There's an individualism in American culture that's awesome in one way because it allows us to do things that sometimes we have always been felt pressure and limited by what our surrounding community dictates and we want to express ourselves, we want to do our own thing. And there's a beauty to that, to be able to have the freedom to say, Screw you all, I'm doing what I want. And in that regard, even in terms of um, opportunities, right? US is built on the idea that if you find a great job, you drop everything you got, you move across the country. Where for many people, it's like, what do you mean I move across the country? My family is right here, my friends are right here. They all grew up down the. I'm not moving anywhere. I'm like, I either find what I need here, or uh, you cannot just. Human relationships are not replaceable, where it's like, oh, I'll just find my new set of friends in the new town. It's like, and again, I'm not judging it because I see the appeal and I see the problematic part of it. I think like as a society, we have taken so far in the direction of the individual freedom at the expense of community that it's going to a direction that it's not healthy for a lot of people. See, I tend to think of it as, you know, it's treating human relationships and social capital as uh, as an exploitable resource. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. You know, so like if you go back, the, the, the crazy thing is how recent this is. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is even, you know, if you go back to the 1950s in most American cities, there were still very tight-knit ethnic neighborhoods and, yep. um, you know, people were very much part of a community. And the idea that, you know, you would just split off and go leave your entire family and and live in another place sometimes people would do it they'd head west or whatever uh but in general like it was about the same as you'd find in southern europe today like where it's just that was not the norm at all yeah and um and some groups are more like that than others but uh but that, that that was the norm people were very much embedded in a community like that and you know the thing about the thing about intact communities is they take a huge amount of the burden uh they 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 are able to perform a lot of the tasks with the people with their members that when uh they get liquidated end up having to be taken up by the state Mm -hmm. you know i I think i've told you this story before but um a while back i was listening to this i was listening to jordan peterson interview this canadian child psychologist and the uh the, the child psychologist is some famous guy up in Canada, and he mm-hmm. works with the government and stuff, developing programs for interventions for, like, at-risk youth. Yeah. And he's going through, and he's telling them about all these different programs. And he gets this one where he's like, okay, so, for example, like, uh, you know, when we have a single mother who's living in the inner city, um, she's got a new baby. And, you know, she doesn't necessarily know how to handle it, how to interpret its signals that it's giving her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know what it wants. And... It's very frustrating for her. And so what we'll do is we'll have one of our social workers who will go in to the house like, you know, X number of times a week and just help her understand sure. all those things. Yeah. Like, you know, and uh, we, we've noticed an X percent reduction in antisocial behaviors like X number of years uh-huh. down the line. And Peterson at one point, he he, he said, oh, so like a grandmother. Uh-huh. 
And then I realized, I was like, oh, every single one of these interventions he's described is a bureaucratic replacement for something that these communities used to do on their own. Absolutely. And so, the, you know, those two things, it's one of the funny things about, like, Republican Party version of, like, conservatism is it's all family values, you know, it's like the slogan. Sure. But the entire economic program is completely just devoted to Destroying liquidating yeah, families and communities. Absolutely. And they don't, and that's maybe for some, some of them it's cynical, but what I found is they just don't get it. And if you, you can explain it to them in a way that they will get it, but most of them, they just don't, they just don't see it. You I know? Mean, it's kind of like your series on the labor movement when uh, the whole Virginia coal mine and all of that is like, in a way you are describing exactly that, the fact of how there are certain economic engines that once they come in, they will grind the community yeah. to dust. That's just what they do. And in that sense, it's like, and that's why, in fact, it's so much easier in you. Like, for example, when I talk with friends from Italy and they're like, uh, you know, they are marvel at how easy it is for me to mer- make certain things happen in U.S. work-wise. And at the same time, they marvel at a complete lack of what they perceive as complete lack of social life. Yeah. Like when they ask yeah. me about my life, they're like, so you basically <laughs> have no friends. And I'm like, what are you talk about you know i have this this and that we are good it's like how often do you see each other i don't know every they're like yeah that's not a friendship it's like that's not you guys are pleasant acquaintances yeah but friends i was at at a wedding years ago and uh the it was you know the my girlfriend at the time it was one of her friends who was getting married i didn't know anybody and so um the girls are all off doing something i'm not a part of the groom's party or anything Mm -hmm. and so i'm just hanging out and so i go to the bar in this hotel and there's this old dude from the groom's side who's there. He's like 65 years old or something. He's from Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's where the groom's from. And after a couple beers, we strike up a conversation. We end up spending like an hour just talking. And I remember, like, I'm still, like, when I think about it, it's just, this is so foreign to my own experience. But this guy, he, every day, every single day, he's 65 years old or whatever he was. Every single day, he finishes his day hanging out on his porch with friends that he has known since he was yep. three years old. Yep. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> and that is what has been the norm for yeah. human beings. For yeah. the overwhelming majority of time we've been around as human beings. That's what we do. So to take us in an environment where one of the most... I keep quoting it all the time because I find it the most terrifying statistic ever. But in recent time, I saw a statistic that in US, about 10% of women and 15% of men report having zero friends. Yeah. And I don't mean one, two friends that you see every three months. I mean, that's a whole other percentage of people, yeah. probably the vast yeah, yeah. majority that have that friendship. No, they're, not, I mean, they're not using your Italian friends' no. uh, definition. They're no. using our definition. Zero yeah, friends. I know, it's 15% of men, 10% of women. When you compare it to what you just described, which has been the norm for human beings all the time, which is you're always around friends, you're always around family, you always have that social connection right next to you. And now the standard is run home, lock the door, hug your PlayStation, and screw the rest of the world kind of thing. And it seems pretty obvious, right, that when you look at say like take an example like the the big explosion in the homeless crisis mm-hmm. that we've seen you know in recent years there's multiple reasons for it obviously like there's drug addiction and alcoholism sure. there's lack of affordable housing that's a big part of it um there's the shutdown of all the mental institutions back in the 70s and 80s all that kind of stuff They're, these all play a factor but the biggest factor is that in an intact community you know, there's a guy who's just wandering around the streets, like, in a, a complete mess, yeah. shitting himself and is just completely unable to take care of himself. And everybody knows that, like, hey, that's the Smith's cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And they would course. see them in church and be like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. why is your cousin, like, on the street? And so it just yeah. wouldn't happen. Like, right. the family would deal with that. Yeah. And maybe sometimes, you know, that would mean they'd, like, lock him in the attic or sure, whatever. Sure. And I'm not saying it was always nope. idealized. No. Nope. But that these things were handled in a... You know, we didn't need uh, like a, a bureaucratic function to deal with something like that because these these communities were self-regulating, you know, in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's a lot of things we're not comfortable with in our on our modern society about how these communities regulated themselves. Like shame was a huge sure. part of it. Yep. And we look at that and, you know, apparently our our uh, 
philosophy today is that nobody should ever feel shame under any circumstances for any reason. That seems to be our predominant yep, philosophy. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, if, if uh, you come from, you know, you know, like I used to date an Arab girl, mm-hmm. very conservative Muslim family. They regulated the hell out of the females in that family using crippling shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can totally understand like why people are like we don't want to we want to go in a different direction. But you know the point is is that they they were able to take care of themselves. You know that's why in fact I was making the point that when I was referring to American individualism, I speak of a double-edged sword. Yeah. I'm not speaking just of a bad side because there are fantastic good sides to it. You know there is an aspect where. I mean, in an ideal world, what would we all want, more or less? I use all, of course, loosely, because you can't find anything that you want to agree upon. But generally speaking, most people would want a certain degree of individual freedom, of having the freedom to do what they want, regardless of social pressures around them. And at the same time, they want to be part of a community, you know, because we need the, the fact that we are dealing with this massive mental health crisis as in my opinion, primarily to do with the breakdown of community and lack mm-hmm. of friendships and yeah. lack of... So we need that. And at the same time, we want some freedom. So there's a sweet spot <clears throat> to be found there somewhere that is allow us to have those, uh, like the 65-year-old guy you mentioned, ending every single one of his days close to his friends on the porch, while at the same time having the freedom to do some stuff on his own without... There is definitely a sweet spot there that yeah. combines the best of both worlds. I think maybe the one of the big differences, and it has to do with the, finding that sweet spot, is, you know, in the past, if you go back to, um, you know, a, a, a Viking village mm-hmm. back in 800 AD or something, you know, this was a society where you were very much dependent on your group. You could not be cast out of your group. Mm-hmm. That would be bad news. And that meant that your group had a fair amount of influence and control over your range yep. of behaviors. Yep. But it was sort of an organic control in the sense that you needed to stay in the good graces of your group mm-hmm. because you need to survive. Yep. And this is how you do it. You know, these you need these people to help defend you. You need these yep. people to defend your resources, your family, all these things. And it's very organic. Like, this is why yep. I do it. Whereas, like, nowadays... There's no survival downside, unless mm-hmm. you count depression, yeah. suicide, yeah. stuff. But yeah. just no immediate survival downside of just leaving every, just having mm-hmm. no friends, no family, or anything like that. You can just go do that, and you can live to be a hundred as long as you can yep. take the crippling depression these days, right? And so, in a in a culture like you know, like the Arab girl I was talking about, like she could, like you know, if you go back to when her fam, her ancestors were living in tents, yeah. She couldn't just leave and be okay. She would not be okay. And so there's a level of social control that comes with that. Now she can just leave. She totally can. And so her, like the bond, the way they bond her to the group is not so much like, well, here's what you're getting out of it. And here's why we all need each other or whatever. It's much more sort of, I don't want to say ideological or moral or something, but it has much less of a... Of a, of a practical basis, you know, and so it feels much more constricting. Yeah, of course. Because if you're just, if you're adapting your behavior to the needs and expectations of your group because for just very clear reasons, you yeah. need these people, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. and you need them to respect you, you need them to know that you're yeah. reliable, uh, that's a totally different thing than just feeling trapped in a group. Completely, you know? Completely. And that's why, in fact, I'm not idealizing small community. Because small community can come with its own heavy sheer of darkness. You know, just about anybody who has ever been part of a cult to testify to that, right? It's like there's, uh, and there's both sides in a cult. That's, that's why people get into cult is because they get these apparent loving family, yeah. community embracing them, love bombing them. And at the same time, there's the dark side of it that comes up with the extreme level of control, squashing individuality, sacrificing all sorts of parts of yourself in the name of this uh, group, which usually is somebody man- pulling the reins of the group and being at the top. So there's definitely, again, I'm not saying, oh, small, happy community, everybody hug trees and love each other. It's not like that. However, we still, it's a primary human need. You know, just because there are plenty of small scale communities that are horrible doesn't deny the fact that that's a primary human need. 
And so that's why, in fact, it's, it, this is not a let's all go back to live in the Paleolithic. Well, you can't. That just, regardless of arguing whether that would be desirable or not, which of course is a whole other topic in terms of what were the plus and minuses of living that way versus the way we live. But that's a bullshit discussion anyway, because ultimately this is never going to happen mm, anyway, yeah. short of an apocalypse. So it doesn't even matter. The question is, what can we do today? that combines some of the things that have made us human, some of the things that are our primary drives, some of the stuff that we, we literally are hardwired in our DNA since day one, with the advantages and cool things about modern life. You know, where do we find that sweet spot? Because clearly, as a society today, and I'm speaking US, but not only, because that's where much of the world is going, mm-hmm. we're not doing a great job in that regard. You know, the balance is so heavily out of whack in one direction that we are doing. I mean, all you got to do is look at the statistics for suicide and depression, not even in the last 300 years, just in the last 50, how they have changed. It's crazy. How those numbers are climbing up by the day. That's not the sign of a society that's functioning or is doing well. That's a sign of a profoundly sick society. Yeah. Yeah, and and a society, you know, where, you know, I see like the last several decades, especially, of uh, just economic policy, but really, it's it's just expo- it's go- it's expanded out into social policy and everything else. Of just, you know, we spent centuries building up social capital, mm-hmm. building up things that, you know, we had that that, that that did have economic utility, that was not obvious. You know, if you have a lower rate of uh, child you know neurosis or or you know all these different things mm-hmm. that a community can kind of take care of or mitigate on its own you know local parish church that can handle voluntarily like yeah. social welfare in the in the community and stuff that then the government doesn't have to go there's economic utility there but it's not obvious and um at the moment and we've gone through and said well you know what we i can I, there is an obvious economic benefit to this guy who doesn't want to leave this area because his family lives here and his friends all live here. And so he doesn't want to leave, even though he's working in a job that doesn't pay him as much as it could mm-hmm. if he moves somewhere else. And maybe it's like a job that doesn't, you know, it's not particular. It's just not the most efficient yeah. use of that human resource, right, yeah. of that labor resource. It would be much better if we plucked him up and moved him to Texas where you get paid $9 more an hour working a job that's, you know, providing more GDP or something. And that's certainly more efficient, like in terms of just pure fungible sure. humanity, right? If you take the phrase human resources seriously, then, then yeah. it is more efficient. Uh, but what you find is, okay, so this guy now has moved states, moved jobs five, six, seven times in his life like most people do yeah. now. And so he's lost all his friends over the course of his life. He has some that like he keeps in maybe very, very vague touch with, but not really, uh, you know, because it's just you're moving, they're moving. Mm-hmm. You don't bother sort of forming deep relationships with people because either you're leaving or they're leaving. So why? Yeah. You, you don't get too attached to like your particular locality because you're going to move eventually probably for another job. And so you have a very shallow life experience uh-huh. a very shallow relationship to the people in the community around you where you touch them on a surface level but but that's really about it you're just yeah. sort of floating along and so by the time that guy gets up to 50 years old you know again he's he's got no real friends his kids have all moved to another state because they went to college in another state yep. and now they got a job there and they're gone they visit on christmas or whatever and you thought that there was no economic utility to him staying behind with all his friends and family in one place. But now he's got an alcohol problem. Now his kids grew up in a divorced home because, you know, this the stress of all the moves and this, all these things. And now we're paying for that yeah. one way or another, you know. But there's no way to really to, to, to easily count up the, 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 the value there, you know, so that we can measure it against the su- supposed efficiency gains. And I think that's where we see the, uh, you know, certain profits that go into the value of a corporation or that go into the GDP. But we don't count the fact that these profits are financed by a degree of human misery that then to address the problems created by the human misery, you need a bigger and stronger states that step in and fulfill what a community would have done, what actually a good life would have done. 
And so sometimes it's a, it's a dog chasing its tail because, you know, people who complain about the big state, and in many cases they are right, they are not realizing that yeah. in, if you don't want that, totally. you have to create these other things. You cannot buy into a system that's essentially demanding the need for a big state. I've tried to sell this idea to like conservative friends, Republican uh-huh. friends and stuff. And some, some of them, if I can... If, I, if I'm having a good day and I can explain it well, are receptive to it. But it's really, it's hard to puncture through this, like an ideological screen that has been intact for decades sure. now, really powerful, which is that, you know, America is entirely an individualistic yeah. country. Yep. And that makes it so that, like, if you're a conservative and you're um, trying to hold back the tide on the expansion of, like, LGBT mm-hmm. rights, I got bad news for you. You're in the wrong country. Like, it's just, this is an individualistic country, and you are not going to be able to make any arguments that you are going to find convincing. Right. Because you're an American, and you believe in all this stuff. You're not even going to be able to make arguments that you yourself find convincing to say no to Uh that. That's that's bad news for you, Mr. Conservative. The other is... uh, you know, it, like all of our economic policy, all of every, mm-hmm. you know, social policy is all geared toward the individual. Yep. And I've always wished that we could, you know, if we had, uh, take, take, here, here's a, just a kind of a nuts and bolts example. You know, I own a steel mill in some Rust Belt town. Uh, I'm going to move. It's my steel mill. I, my, I built yep. it. It's yep. my resources that put into it. Like I've managed, it's mine. Yeah. It's my property, right? Just like my car, my sure. house, whatever. And I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to move it to Mexico mm-hmm. because cheaper. it's cheaper. Yeah. And because my competitors are doing it and I got to keep up with them. And so that's what I'm going to do. And it's my right. I can do whatever I want. I can go move to Mexico if I want so mm-hmm. I can move my business there. Fine. And there's no way within like an individualistic mindset to tell that guy he can't do that. Right. Because the community that he's affecting has no rights. There, it has absolutely no rights. Yeah. Like, it, it's not even really considered... Like, a corporation is considered a person for legal mm-hmm. reasons. A community is not. Isn't that fantastic? It's a crazy. corporation is a person, yeah. but not a community. Yeah. I mean, you have the it's... Margaret Thatcher quote where she said, uh, there's no such thing as society. Because... And she was making this... This is Cold War, so yeah. collectivism versus yeah. individualism, communism versus capitalism, fine. A little different context, but... You know, that quote has always stuck with me as being particularly just horrifying. It is. You know, that because you could go to that guy, like a healthy, perfectly sane society that is not oppressive in any, you know, right. I, I wouldn't call it an oppressive society or anything, to say to that guy that, no, you, you can't just destroy this community. And I understand you're not bombing the community or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're just moving your factory out. I totally get that. But your factory's been there for 30 years. Yeah. And... By making the choice to have it rooted there for 30 years, a whole ecosystem has grown up around it, and you have some obligation yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. And, but we don't, we don't have any room for that in our ideology. No, because no, no. it's about... And that's not the thing that's funny about it, because the whole thing that it's about the money and the bottom line at the end, one of the things that you see these days, you see a ton of people who have more money than they know what to do with, and they are miserable as hell. Their kids hate them and they don't want to talk to them. They have no friends. Their marriage sucks. They are, And so they are sitting on this pile of gold. It really reminds me like, uh, you know, like the Hobbit movies, like the dragon smog. Yeah, that's what that archetype like, is. No I will doubt. not part with a single coin. And it's like, you're a lonely bastard in this empty cave with nothing around you. And yeah, you're sitting on a ton of gold. Good for you. Clap, clap, clap. It's like... What was that all that goal for? I mean, if it doesn't improve the quality of your life, now you can afford a better antidepressant yeah. rather than the generic brand, but you're still in a situation where it, it's a horrible life. I feel like people are starting to wake up to this stuff, but they don't. People, we really haven't yet provided people with the language to think about it and talk about it yet, but people are starting to realize that we're in a real crisis yeah. in terms of. I mean, just look at the way it manifests in politics or whatever, just the ambient level of anger and anxiety. And mm-hmm. Part of, you know, there's legitimate political reasons sure. for those, all the whatever, but really it's just that it, it runs in the other direction to a large extent where the level of anxiety and insecurity and anger is just higher in the society and that's manifesting itself in our politics. And it, maybe it creates a feedback loop, but that, that happens. And people are starting to notice that. People are starting to realize that We've got real problems in terms of our ability to. You can't. You just can't live with you know millions of 
people all living alone right next to each other and have that be a sustainable model for a society to hang together, you know? And I think part of what um, explained that climate you're describing of hatred and division and political, like you can't say a word without automatically having half of the people hate you and half of the people who somehow feel they have to support you or something. It's so much of it is it's so much easier to find some boogeyman that that's the reason why we can't have a good life. That's It's all because of that political philosophy or those people or whatever the hell it is. Because if you don't blame it on this boogeyman, then you have to take responsibility for the fact that you have no damn clue how to go about reorganizing the entirety of society. Because that's what you would have to do in order to solve some of these problems. It's so much easier if you can say, oh, it's the fault of those guys. And I'm not even, it's any of those, because everybody does it, right? Everybody Dude, you're describing, their... really, you're describing like the the oldest human religion in existence right there, basically, or the oldest religious ritual mm-hmm. in existence, where you have like people who have subconscious anxiety and security, all these sort of things that are yeah. just ambient in any group of people, especially like you go back a long mm-hmm. time uh, where food security, things like that are a problem that are just in these negative feelings, these fears, these anxieties, these anger, resentment, all these things that are in there. And you know that if we let that sort of start manifest, we're all going to kill each other yeah. if we start letting that get to the surface in our day-to-day relationships. And so what we do is we all kind of come together unconsciously. We just, nobody plans this. But we have a way of being like, let's all get together. That's our problem right over there. Let's get that goat and run it out of the village or yep. whatever. And yeah, the scapegoat mechanism is extremely powerful. That's for sure. And it doesn't have to be animals or people. or like sure. You can be an ideology. It can be an idea, something like that. You know. And the problem is that, of course, as we well know, while it may relieve uh, emotional tension for a little bit, it still doesn't solve the problem. No, you, gotta, you always have to come back and pay the bill. And yeah. you need a new scapegoat to relieve the pressure. But you're never really dealing with the root cause. And so you're constantly going back to that issue.